So at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. As people who know Christ, there are things that we are very confident of and we proudly proclaim. We proudly stand on those things and, and love to say them out loud. We love to sing them. We love to pray them. Some of those are a clear recognition that we are sinners, that we are in need of rescuing. And so therefore, we love to talk about the cross and the hope that is grounded in the cross. We deeply affirm out loud the resurrection of Jesus. We love the reality that we are loved eternally by God, that He so loves us and cares for us and and has done so much for us. We boldly proclaim that the Word of God is the Word of God. It doesn't have error and, and it gives us the counsel we need for life. We love talking about the hope of heaven, that we will be there one day, that we will be in a place of No heartache, no crying, no pain. The old order of things has passed away. And we proclaim those things very confidently. But I'm going to talk today about a subject that we seem to not want to be confident of. And I want us to be at a place at the end today that we boldly stand on the words of Jesus here. And that we can proclaim these things. Because I believe when we get to the place where we understand and get our security, it brings a freedom and a power to our lives that is unmatched by anything that we might face. So everybody in the room this morning, I know we have one thing in common. We long for security. We want that in our lives. We want that emotionally. We want that spiritually. We want it for our church. We want it for our kids, for our marriage. We want that stability for our country because stability and security brings confidence, it brings joy, it leads to a place of rest in our lives. And so this text that we just read out loud a while ago is one of the most significant texts to understand why we can have the freedom that we have. And you will see that as we spend the majority of our time looking at these last words uh, in this text today. So here's an overview of where we're going. We are His sheep. Jesus has been talking about that. He is our shepherd. The Father gives you and I to Jesus. We are placed in His hands. Jesus gives us eternal life. He will speak about that. And because the Father gives us to Jesus, Jesus gives us eternal life, and we are placed in the hand of the Father and the Son, therefore we have eternal security. There is a safety about our lives that is unlike anything that can be found on this earth. 
all around us today, we, I think as believers, feel the instability that exists in the world and in our lives by the things that we see. And so this week I did something. Um, I just did a brief look to say what's gone on in our country over the past week, what things have come out, and just look at those things that indicate the instability that is a part of our world. My daughter lives in Chicago going to school there, and so the week of April the 11th through the 18th saw three people killed and 24 others shot. Most of that in one weekend. That will rock a city, by the way. That city is rocked weekly by the devastation and the sin that's there. On April the 17th, Scientists in China, along with some other scientists throughout the world, announced a new finding. They had done something, and they had done something horrible. They had taken macaque monkey embryos and united them with human embryos and had created something not human, not animal, something freakish. And then they waited for about three weeks until the embryos died. The implications of that are strong. We are not the maker, folks. And this craziness that's going on in the realm of science needs to be checked, and God's people should speak out against it. Back in January in our country, there was a court ruling that came down that spoke about religious hospitals or doctors who had religious convictions, whether they are Christian or uh, they embrace Islam or whatever the case is, that they would have to be forced Uh, the court case was lost, to be forced to do gender reassignment surgery if it was against their conscience. And so that was struck down in January, but this administration appealed that, wanting to force doctors and hospitals to do that um, surgery um, if it goes against somebody's religious beliefs. I read a study this week that's just come out. States that have legalized marijuana have seen a 46% increase in two specific things among men ages 21 to 39. 46% increase in cutting themselves and committing suicide over states that have not legalized marijuana. Progressive Christianity is dominating much of our culture and affecting the church. And so there's a lot of things in and around us that I know you feel it, just, it's just unstable. The world is headed in a bad place. But there's great news for believers today. The world can fall apart. Our God has a kingdom that can't be shaken. It's stable, and so when we stand on the rock, regardless of whatever may come down and what may happen, we can weather the storm not because we have a power, but because He has power and He lives inside of us. We have no hope. We have no security outside of Him. And so today we're going to talk about this. How does our longing for security, how do do we see it as a reality for us in our lives? And so um, we're going to read each verse again. I know you don't mind that, but let's read verse 22 again. And let's look at the setting of this text when this happens. Um, In John 10, 1 through 21 that we finished up last week. Um, took place in the fall, likely in September and October. And there's a couple of months gap as we come to verse 
um, 20, 22 today. And so there's been a two to, two to three month period has passed. So verse 22, this is in December. At that time, at the Feast of the Dedication, it took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So again, there's been two to three months this happened. If you remember last week how it ended, Jesus has made this great statement, and then there's a big debate about Jesus. This guy's insane, crazy, or there was a big debate of, no, only God could empower someone to open the eyes of the blind. And so the religious leaders are having this. The sermon kind of stops. Two to three months pass. Jesus has come back to Jerusalem at the feast. We call it, we know this as Hanukkah. If you know of Hanukkah, the menorah, and all of that, this is the festival that takes place that Jesus has come back. It's in December, and he is walking in the temple, and he's come back, and he's going to continue what he was saying a couple of months before in October about the shepherd and the sheep and the reality of this. So the Feast of the Dedication, or again, as we call it today, and it's known as, as Hanukkah, what happened was around this, in 167 B.C., a Greek leader named Antiochus Epiphanes came into Israel, came in with his army, he marched in, he captured the city, he murdered 40,000 people just like that. Another 40,000 people he sold into slavery, and then he went into the temple, in a very egregious, intentional act, he brought a pig into the temple. If you know about Jewish, they couldn't eat pork, and, and they were to watch, um, stay away from that. He brought a pig in, and he laid it down on the bronze altar, and he cut it and let the blood flow out everywhere, and then... From the carcass of the animal, he boiled it and created a broth and walked all through the temple, throwing the blood and throwing the pig broth, desecrating the temple. Three years later, in 164 B.C., there was a great man. I've read this book, the book of Maccabees. There's a man named Joseph uh, Maccabees, and he came in and he overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. And they began to cleanse the temple again and to dedicate it by the reading of psalms and singing. And one of the things that they did in this, if you remember the menorah and the story of that, if you've heard that before, but they lit lights all over the city of Jerusalem, um, commemorating and and speaking to the people that God is going to bring His light back and God has brought restoration to the people. And so this is the time of the text, remembering what God had done and overthrowing the Greek leader Jesus has come to this feast of the ded- dedication, and he's walking around in the temple. By the way, let me just say this again: it's been two to three months. He's been gone from the city. Nobody's gone searching for him to talk to him anymore. And we'll see in a moment. They're going to come and ask him a question. They're not sincere in what they ask. But he's been gone, and they could have gone and searched out for him, and they waste. Two to three months of spending time with Jesus, of listening to his teaching. In four months from this text, he will be hanging on a cross at the Passover. So the end of his ministry is present. He's taught. They fought him. They've argued with him. He's been gone to two to three months. And they waste this time and waste this opportunity. Do we not do that also as well? We have all of these amazing opportunities to grow in our relationship with Christ. And we let the days and the weeks and the hours build up until there's a distance that happens in our relationships and our relationship with God. And, and this is the case here. 
They could, have had a, they could have found out where he was and gone and spent time with him. So my encouragement today is let's not waste our days. Let's not waste our time on silliness and holding on to anger, whatever, the, whatever we might want to hold on to. Let's seek the one who has given us his grace and who has given us his incredible mercy. Let's look at the second thing this morning. And it's connected in verse 23. I've read it already. But it says, And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. I want to talk for a moment about the Savior being in our midst. Do not ever, hear me, lovingly say this. Do not ever skip over things that we might read and go, there's no truth in those verses. I think these simple words that John wrote here and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon are incredible words to consider. It's December time. In Jerusalem, in December, the high is 56. Drops down at night to, on average, 47. Sometimes it gets into the high 30s. And I want you to picture Jesus on a 40-degree morning walking in the temple and breathing and that cool mist comes out as he breathes in the cool air. And he's got a group of people following him. The eternal God of heaven is walking right there. You could go talk to him. You see, our faith is unique in that God didn't stay away. God came near. Our faith is unique and he didn't yell down from heaven, build a tower, build a ladder, and try to figure out how to get to me. No, our faith is unique in that our God sent, seated in the midst of angel worship, left that place and came. He experienced what you and I experience. I was up this morning really early, stepped on the back porch. Beautiful morning this morning before the sun came up. Coolness in the air, knowing that the sun's going to shine today. It's going to be one of those unique days. It's going to be warm and cool at the same time. He had that on his skin He lived in the seasons of life. He lived through falls and winters and springs and summers. Our God took on skin and experienced the things that you and I experience. And there he is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, who, by the way, he is a physical descendant of Solomon, walking in that temple. In this colonnade is where they would gather and there would be teaching. So Jesus is walking in the temple. You could see him. He is there. And you could draw near to him. One of the unique things that I've learned through the years in reading about sheep and shepherds is that high in the hills and sometimes in the mountains of Israel, um, the shepherd would bring his sheep and he would have to bring them from up high and bring them down. And they would have to go to the, through these ravines that are really tight. They're not real wide. They're, they're, some of them it sometimes are just... Uh, a shepherd and one sheep behind each other going down. Sometimes they could come two or three beside each other. And so if he had a hundred sheep and he's walking, leading them down the mountain, some of the sheep are way back there. They can't see the shepherd. They're just following the one that's in front of them. And so the shepherd would do this. He would begin to sing. And he would sing out loud and it would echo off the walls. And, it would, and they could hear it, so the sheep way back there could, could be reminded, I don't see him, 
But we are moving, and though it seems maybe a little unstable, I can hear His voice. And so the shepherd would sing psalms. And the sheep would hear the songs being sung, and they were reminded that there's someone out there leading me, and I must follow Him. And I, I'm amazed today about this reality of, as I've thought about Him walking in the, in the temple, in Solomon's colonnade, that it must have been incredible for John as he wrote this gospel in the late first century. And he thought back over, he must have smiled at times and thought, and, and he must have talked to others, I can't believe I used to walk with him. And as he wrote these words, it just must have lifted his heart to think that I was following him that day. Our God had come near to people to rescue them from their sin. And I want to remind you and I this morning that as the shepherd sang to the sheep, our good shepherd sings to his people. Listen to these words. By the way, we have made ourselves the center of these words. We have no significance without Christ. But how amazing it is that he has at times made much of us, not more than him, but he's made much of broken people. This is the prophet Zephaniah writing these words. The Lord your God, He is in your midst. Think about that. Here's Jesus walking in the temple. Here's the prophet Zephaniah speaking about this. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one to save. He is a Savior. And He will... You can say amen. It's okay. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And He will, when you are deeply disturbed, He will quiet you with His love. And this one I don't get. He will exult over you with singing. Is that not astounding? That the God of the universe loves people like you and I to exult over His saving work in our midst. So there's the setting, there's a Savior in our midst, and now let's talk about some suspense that's not really suspense. In July of 1975, a movie came out in the United States of America that my parents took me to. They should have not taken me to this, but they took me to this movie. At the end of every July and early August, our family went to South Padre Island and spent a week on the coast. My dad and his friends like to fish, and we like to run around on the beach and do things at the beach. But my parents took me to a movie called Jaws. I was 10. I, I, it was not a wise move by my parents, just to be honest with you. I remember sitting in that movie, getting on the edge of my seat. And I'll, I don't know if y'all remember that, if you've seen it. When that head falls out of that boat, to the bottom of that boat, I thought I was dying right there at the movie theater. It just my heart, I just, suspense. I had another moment of incredible suspense in the 1990s. Pam and I, we didn't have kids yet. Uh, it was the night before youth camp. I was a youth pastor at a church there in Houston, and the first Jurassic Park came out. And so Pam and I got tickets. 
we went, got there a little bit late. We kind of had to sit way up close. But do y'all remember when you could go to movies and sit beside people? Do you remember that? Okay. Well, this was one of those movies, and it was every seat packed. If you've ever gone to a movie and you sat beside somebody, you probably sat beside somebody who talks to the people on the movie screen throughout the movie, telling them what to do, what not to do. And, and so we sat by one of these guys, really big, husky guy, and all movie long, he kept saying, don't go over there, don't you go over there, there's dinosaurs over there, the T-Rex is going to eat you, and he just would talk. And, and I remember sitting so close to that big screen and thinking, gosh, dinosaurs, can you imagine, can you imagine trying to get away from a velociraptor or whatever the case may be? And I remember the intensity of that moment, a sensible moment. That's not what's taking place here. They, there's no suspense. When they come to Jesus on this day and they say, oh, you've been, you've been keeping us in suspense for the last two to three months. If you are the Christ, why don't you just, pl- just come out and plainly say it? Well, they have not been sitting on the edge of their life seat waiting for this answer. What's the evidence of that? He's been gone for three months and they've not gone to find out an answer. They're not that eager. And we know this in John's Gospel when he uses this phrase, the Jews, he is referring to the religious leaders. So they're not really sitting on the edge of their seat to know this information. They just want to have a confrontation with him once again. So I believe that and think it's pretty clear. This is a false statement. They're not really interested in knowing this answer. They just want to question him. And he's going to speak, and they just want to doubt him again because this is what they did. One of the great expectations of the Jewish people was is that the Messiah would come and he would be a military ruler. He would overthrow Rome and he would restore Israel to prominence. But they failed to understand Isaiah chapter 53, that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And they also failed to understand that the Old Testament spoke about a great shepherd who would come. It was a very agrarian culture, and and a lot of them were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham and Jacob were shepherds. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. So the Messiah was going to come. He was going to be much like a shepherd. He would be incredibly good, but he would invest his life and give them to the sheep. So the religious leaders looked at Jesus. They just didn't see this great guy who was going to restore Israel. And then they looked at his followers. He's got these fishermen got one guy who's got a zealot background who was against Rome. And then he's got these women that are following along with the group. This is not a group that's going to overthrow what we want and long for in the Messiah. So they looked at Jesus as ordinary, in a sense, though he did extraordinary things. They just kind of saw him as common, and they were not moved by anything. But he was not common, and he was not ordinary. Dead people came to life again. Blind people saw. Lepers were cured The deaf could hear. People with mangled hands had them straightened out. Those like the Samaritan woman who'd made a mess of her moral life was forgiven and restored and given life. He was anything but ordinary. And so they ask him, as they see him walking in the temple on that morning, all right, let's go ask him. So tell us, just tell us plainly if you are the Christ. This is a false motive on their part, and again, because they are not interested in believing. And we can deduce that this is not an honest question that they were asking because 
Um, next week it will start with they find stones in the temple and they want to kill him right there in the temple. They're not interested in believing. They're just interested in getting him out of the way of their lives. You see, their issue was not lack of information. Their issue was not lack of evidence. Their issue was not lack of people giving testimony. The Bible tells us this, that Jesus went, in Matthew 9, Jesus went through all their towns and villages, healing every disease and sickness and casting out demons. So there are people all over the land who could come and say, this is what I was like, this is what he did. I was blind, but now I can see, and, and they could give testimony of this. So the issue of the religious leaders was not that they didn't have evidence. It wasn't that they couldn't go find people who to, get, to give testimony about what had been done in their lives. And it's almost as if they are saying here, you could clear up a few things for us in our opinion of you, if you just would tell us who you are. Here's what they're doing. It is still done today. They are laying fault at Jesus for the reason that they're not believing in Jesus. And he's going to tell them in a moment, I've already told you who I am, and I've shown you who I am by what I have done. I've talked with people in my lifetime, and I know you have as well, and particularly those who claim to be atheists, and they'll say, well, I don't, I don't believe there is a God. As I continue to try to have a conversation with them and speak with them, inevitably, not every single time, but there have been times where some point in the conversation, they don't recognize it, but they say this, well, I'm mad at God. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I thought you didn't believe in God. And now what you're saying is, the re- is that the reason you don't believe is because you're mad at him about something. And so the reality for these religious leaders, and I think a reality for even our culture and even our world, it's not that there's not enough evidence. It's not that there's not enough life testimony from people and thousands of years of testimony of life change of the words and the work of Jesus. The reality is this, is that some people just willfully hate God and refuse to believe. And that's been around from the beginning, and that will continue to be the case here. So they are, in a sense, laying blame at Jesus as to why it's not clear who he is. So let's talk about how he answers that, and let's talk about his straight and honest revelation. Look at 25. So here's how Jesus answered when they said, Tell us plainly, if you are the Christ, stop beating around the bush. And so he says this, um, I have told you, and you don't believe. So that's one thing he tells them. I've been telling you who I am. So for you to say that I've not been telling you who I am is wrong. And then he says this, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. Jesus never left things ambiguous. He was very clear in his communication in regard to, to who he is. So let's talk about this first one for a moment. So he tells them, answer the question, I have been telling you for a while now, since John chapter 5, since I healed the, the man waiting to get into the pool of Bethesda, I've been telling you who I am. But you don't want to believe my words and don't want to follow them. So I want to show you what he's been telling them. Go back to John chapter 5 and go to verse 39 with me. 
So I want to show you some things from John chapter 5 and John chapter 8 of what he has been telling them. John 5, 39. So he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what's the, here's what he's telling them. The scripture, the Old Testament scriptures that y'all hold in such high regard, they are testimonies of who I am. I've been communicating this. The prophets communicated that. But you don't believe that. You are rejecting that. Go to John chapter 8 now. And go to verse 25. So this is right after he said, I am the light of the world. And so in John 8, 25, they asked him, who are you? That's, that's, he's going to clearly answer this. When somebody asks you that, you, we answer that. So the, who are you? And so Jesus said, just what I have been, look what he says, I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I, what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, 30 tells us that many believed in him. Go now to verse 37 of John chapter 8. So they're giving this great testimony. Well, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. And so in 37 he says, yeah, I I know that you are offspring of Abraham physically. And yet you seek to kill me. Notice what he says here. Because my word, what I've been saying... It finds no place in you. Go to verse 43 now of John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So again, he tells them, I've been telling you, you can't bear my word. You don't want to listen to my word. Go to verse 55 now of John 8. But you have not known him, and I know him. If I were to say, tell you, I've been telling you that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him. I keep his word. And your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And listen how clear he makes this who he is. So Jesus said to them, I'm telling you the truth, truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So look, folks, this is our world today as well. We're not here today with a lack of evidence and a lack of testimony from the Scripture about who Christ is. It's right here in our laps. It's on our phones. It's on our iPads. We have the words of God come to us that we need. So their issue back then, our issue today, is not that we, the words of God have not come to us. It's that we, our, our world doesn't want the words of Christ. It's also not that we've not been given evidence that Jesus speaks next. 
He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. This is exactly in line as to what he said in John chapter 5, verse 19. When he said, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does Likewise, and so Jesus points them. He's been pointing them in John 5, 20, 5, 36, 7, 3, 9, 4, and 10, 25. Jesus tells them clearly, look at what I've been doing. It gives evidence as to who I am. Not only to my words, I've made clear who I am, but my works that I've done in my Father's name, they give evidence to who I am. They were not lacking eyewitnesses. They were not lacking affirmation and not lacking evidence The works of Jesus serve as evidence to His true nature. And Jesus consistently did this. I'm doing this not in my name. I'm doing this in my Father's name, giving glory to His Father, acting in deep, great humility. The religious leaders never stop and ask themselves this question. Okay, this guy who's been traveling everywhere, casting out demons and healing people and raising the dead, Would God give power to somebody who's a lying, fake person? And there's absolutely no way that he would have done that. So the evidence from Christ's life is true. So he gives them a straight answer to their question of, why don't you just tell us plainly? He's like, listen, I have. I've told you out loud, and my works give evidence as to who I am. And then he comes back to his sermon that they interrupted him at a couple of months before. And look at 26. But you do not believe. This is why. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here's the evidence of my sheep. They they hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Notice the connection that Christ is making here. That when you believe in Jesus as your Savior, as the Good Shepherd, you belong. You are in the family of God. You are placed in the family. This belief leads to belonging. So therefore, if you don't believe, you don't what? You don't belong. You are separated. So Jesus is telling them, listen, let me tell you why you've been rejecting me over and over. Even though my words have told you who I am, you're asking me the question to tell you who I am. My words have given evidence of who I am. Y'all don't believe because you don't belong. You have not believed that I am the one that the Father sent to rescue you, and to deal with sin on a permanent basis. So belief brings belonging. Lack of belief keeps us separated or keeps people separated from Him. Those who do not know Him, when you hear the Word of God, they go, I can't buy that, I can't buy it. We share with somebody the truth about Christ, and they go, I don't believe that, and they reject it. And sometimes they get upset about it. And the reason is they can't hear nor understand the truth of Scripture. Jesus has been talking about this often. Those of you who believe, you will belong. Listen to this, John 6, 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise this person up on the last day. John 6, 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. John 8, 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Whoever is of God, Jesus said, hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them, this is John 8, 47. He's saying the same thing here in John 10, is that you are not of God. No belief means no belonging. No family of God. So when the sheep believe, they belong. Find it interesting. I hope you do as well. That those religious leaders who fought Jesus and his words over and over keep putting him in the middle of their lives. Challenging him. Wrestling with him. Asking him questions. And he keeps telling them, listen, unbelievable patience. He's being patient again, giving them an opportunity, communicating with them again, telling them the truth as to who he is. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And then he turns now to the language of the sheep. Let me give you three clear markings from Christ here for a moment to show those who belong. And the first mark is this. Jesus, these are his words. My sheep hear my voice. If you belong to Jesus, you want to know if you belong to Jesus, you will love God's word. You will love it. You'll welcome his word when it's taught. The true sheep of Jesus, the church, are marked by longing for the words, listening to the words, and living out the commandments of Christ. True sheep, true followers, Respond to the teaching of Jesus and obey. That's how you know the true sheep obey. We'll talk about that here in just a second. So that's the first mark. Jesus is telling me you don't belong, and here's why. You don't like my words. And so it gives indication you don't like the voice of God because I'm speaking my Father's words, but my sheep, they hear my voice. Secondly, here's a second mark. The shepherd knows the sheep. And so Jesus says, I know them. This truth should have great impact upon our lives. God knows us. This shouts to us that we are in a personal relationship with Him. If we have come to faith in Christ and we have believed and received. John 10, 14, we looked at it last week. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So they, we know His voice. He knows us, and we know Him. Matter of fact, I had a fantastic, just to give a testimony this morning, Saturday afternoon yesterday. Early in the morning, I got up and played disc golf. I came home and went walking with my wife and enjoying the morning. I got ready, took her on a lunch date, and I came back, and I had two Saturday afternoon naps. That is awesome. That is a great Saturday afternoon. I had one at about 1.30. Got up and did a few things around the house, and then I fell back asleep again at about 4. It was fantastic. And I was reminded of him knowing us. David was so blown away by God's knowledge of us that 
one day he wrote this phenomenal psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, from afar you discern the thoughts in my head. You search out my path, you know my lying down and are acquainted with every aspect of my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you already know it altogether what I'm about to say. And then David writes, you hem me in, you, and what? This is our theme this morning. You enclose me, you hem me in, you make it tight around me. Listen to what David writes. You hem me in behind me and before me, and I'm stuck in the middle. So I've got God here because I belong to Him, and I've got God here, and I am in Him, in the middle of Him. You hem me in behind and before, and if that's not enough, David says, and you lay your, God lays His hand upon His children. And then David says this, such knowledge, this thought, knowing this, is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. I can't grasp this reality. So you may be here today going, he doesn't really know my pain. Yeah, he does. He's so deeply acquainted with your pain. He knows it better than you and I know our own pain. So a marking of the sheep is they know his voice and the sheep are known by him. And here's the third thing. The sheep follow the one who knows them. Because they know they've been hemmed in before and behind, they know there's a security, and so therefore they follow him. They follow him. That's what Jesus says there. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Christ followers, sheep, Christians, whatever term, followers of the way they were known in Acts, We are to get to a place where we are content and find it perfectly fitting to go wherever He goes, wherever He leads, and whatever He calls us to do. We are the ones who surrender to His leadership in our lives and desire to be led by Him wherever it takes us. The twelve followed Him for three years. Judas ends up hanging himself and The Apostle Paul becomes a really key figure in the middle of all that. And those original followers, they followed him everywhere he went and gave their lives for him. There's a great description in the book of Revelation that I think has application for us here as sheep that I want to touch on. In Revelation 7, there's this picture of 144,000. They are male virgins that they are called out from the 12 tribes. They come together. They become the great evangelists. You, you can't kill them. They survive it. There's not anything anybody could do to kill them. And then when you get to Revelation chapter 14, they have been going all over the earth proclaiming the gospel in the tribulation period. And they are there. And John writes these words about them. And he gives a description of how they lived that you, you and I need to embrace. 
This is Revelation 14.4. It is these, as John sees the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And it is these, listen to this, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what they were marked by. Wherever Jesus was at work, they went there during the tribulation period, and they will work. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits of, for God and the Lamb. These words are ones that we should embrace and ones that we should want to be called is that we are willing to follow Him wherever He goes. All right, let's finish up here. Good morning. Y'all doing okay? I have been deeply, deeply praying over this section as we finish. I can't, I can't, help, I can't help you understand. I can't make you understand. I can try and help you understand this. But I want to ask you to pray with me. I know this is weird. It's, it's not the closing prayer, so don't get your hopes up. Okay, it's not the closing prayer. Will you ask the Lord with me that we as a church would get this, what we're about to look? Will you pray with me right now? Let's do that. Lord, these words here, I think, are so key to us living in freedom and hope. So Spirit, I am asking you to help me communicate them clearly. Spirit, I'm asking by your power to open up eyes and ears in this room today that are clogged with sin and rebellion. I'm asking you, Spirit, would you move in people's hearts today to let go of the sin they've done in the past that is keeping them from believing today that they are yours. This I pray in the name of Jesus as we were taught to pray. Amen. Look at 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, notice, given, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Now Jesus says, and my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. So here, let's talk about this. Let's talk, first of all, about the security that we have as believers in Jesus. Let's talk about just Jesus first. So Jesus says here, I give. You don't earn salvation. I give eternal life. This is my work. I do this work. Are y'all with me? We do not earn salvation. We cannot be good enough. He gives eternal life. Let's not make a mockery of Christ's words and the truth. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Our security of our salvation comes not in that we earn by our works 
making us the center. Our security is grounded in that the eternal God has given. He has given our salvation. And this word perish here is a Greek word that speaks of future punishment in hell. It can mean separation. It can also mean to be destroyed. Not destroyed from the standpoint of not existing anymore. We don't affirm annihilation that the Spirit just goes away. So he's speaking about those I give eternal life to. Listen to this. They will never be sent away from me, ever. Because I give them eternal life, it is certain, it is sure, they will never be sent away from me. They will not perish. We will never be separated from the love of God in Christ. We are His. We belong to Him. Listen to these words, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come, enter into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So not only does He give us life, He's the one who gives us life. We don't give us life. Then He does this. He gives us life, and then He takes our, our little life, and He places our life in His hand. So we are in His hand. He gives us life, and then in salvation, we are placed in His hand. And listen to what Jesus says. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There is no power. There is no authority. There is no depression. There is no stress. There is no war. There is no accusation. There is no scheme of man. Satan cannot topple and overcome our Jesus. There is no amount of trickery, no amount of eloquence of words that will fool Him to let go of us. We are in His hand. In the original Greek, this word snatch means to rob, to seize, or to steal away. Listen to what Jesus says. You are in My hand. My hand is so strong No one can snatch you out of my hand. And even if you could sneak up on him and try to pry his fingers loose, no one can do that. That's why Paul writes these words. For I am convinced, I am certain, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alexander McLaren says of this verse here, a literal rending of this verse is, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall not at all by any means in any case, in any place, at any time, for any purpose, whether they be male or female, perpetually or eternally ever perish. For you have died, Paul said, and your life is now hidden. Watch this. Now hidden in Christ. Hidden in Him. If that's not good enough for you, can I give you some more good news? Then Jesus says, and my Father, my Father, who, watch this, (laughs) it's confusing, Trinity confusing. Okay, Jesus gives us eternal life. 
Those who get the eternal life, the Father now gives those to Jesus. Try to wrap your mind how to understand that perfectly. It doesn't chart real well, but it's the truth. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So the idea here is, according to Christ, the Father is greater than all. Therefore, none are a match to Him. So watch. I I can't illustrate this because it's Trinity. But watch. We are Jesus' hand. This is us. We are in Him. And now... Jesus says, and my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and we are in His hand. We are in His hand. And then Jesus says, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look, look where our salvation sets today. Not in this room, not in your good works this week. Our salvation rests in that we are in the hand of Jesus, in the hand of the Father, Eternally secure. He is above all. He is supreme in all matters. And when the Father gives us to Christ, because this is true, Jesus is not going to squander what has been given to Him by the Father. He's not going to drop us on our head. My father used to say that to me when I did dumb things. I didn't drop you on your head. And I don't have any proof about that. I think he did, probably. He's not going to drop us. He doesn't erase us. This speaks of a safe preservation that happens for our good and the Father's giving of us to the Son. So watch it again. I give them eternal life, and they are in my hand. And then the Father gives them to me, And you are in the Father's hand, like you're in my hand. And if that's not good enough, can I tell you something else? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 13. Here's the third aspect of our security. And it's the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, in Christ, also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. Doke. How do I know that I have a, a guarantee that I am His? That I'm in His hand, I'm in the Father's hand. How do I know, how do I know that that's the case? We have this guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it because we were sealed, we were given inside of us the promised Holy Spirit. And we don't have our full possession of our final salvation yet. We still wrestle with sin here even though we are saved and we are secure. One day our final completion of our salvation will come where we will sin no more and we will be free from the shackles of this. Now go to 2 Corinthians to your left, chapter 1. And let's look at one other verse. Verse 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Notice the God-centered language here. It's not earning. We don't do this. And it is God, the Father, it is the Father who establishes us with you in Christ. Who has anointed us. Wow, listen to that. He has anointed us and who, 22, has also put His seal on us, marked us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a what? What does it say? A guarantee. Guarantee. If you want to know today how you can just drive a stake through this idea that you can lose your salvation. The only way to drive a stake to it is embrace the truth and the teaching of Scripture. We are in the Father's hands. We are in the hands of Jesus. We have been marked, a deposit in us, guaranteeing our future salvation. We are hemmed in before. We are hemmed in behind. And if that's not enough, I got one more. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. So as they, again, I can't do this, as they both hold us in their hand, that only happens because the Father and the Son are one. There's a unity that is there. So I'm going to get up all in your grill right now, as they say, okay? We must notice, we must get this. Our salvation has not been brought by our hand. So therefore, we cannot and we don't have the power to keep our salvation. Our salvation has been done by Christ. He has given that. We are in His hand. We are in the Father's hand. We have the Holy Spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing our future inheritance. The Father and the Son are one. So therefore, our salvation is not in our hands, but His. So we must quit thinking that it belongs to us. It doesn't. We have been rescued in a sense. Yes, it is our salvation. But we did not earn it. We were given it. And so therefore, our security lies with Him. And I tell you, folks, when I got this, really got it at about age 22. I became a believer at 17. When I really got the depth of being in Christ, all these things, If you ever read the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, this phrase, in Him, in Him, is over and over. When you realize that we've been seated, do you know where we are spiritually right now? You're not at life point spiritually. Do you know where you are right now? You are in Christ who is seated at the right hand of His Father. That's where our salvation is being guarded right now. I guess that's a fifth thing I could say. If that's not enough, there's a fifth one right there. It's being guarded, and we are at the place where moth, rust, and thieves can't break in. And when you and I get this, 
we can live in freedom, not fear. Because we recognize that our security is not grounded in what everybody else thinks about us, their perspectives about us. And if you haven't noticed, everybody has a perspective all the time about us. See, that's why the Apostle Paul, writing to arrest and do damage to the church and to Christians on the road to Damascus, gets blinded by light. And his first words to Jesus are, Who are you, Lord? (laughs) Isn't that weird? Who are you, Lord? I'm going to destroy this. Who are you, Lord? And then he gets it. And he starts proclaiming. And then in his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit comes to him in Acts 20 and says, Hey, every city that you go in, Paul, let me tell you what's going to happen. I got some great news for you, Paul. You're going to be persecuted and mocked and arrested and beaten everywhere you go. And you know what Paul said? I have one deep passion regardless of that. I'm going to finish the race. And so he's, I believe, arrested a third time. And he's in Rome. And Nero's about to cut his head off. Literally. And he writes to his young pastor friend by the name of Timothy. And he says to Timothy, I've run the race. I've fought the fight. And I've finished. And now what awaits me is the crown of righteousness which the Lord Himself will award to me on that day. I think Paul is one of the rare people who understood what it's like to have your salvation so so secure that you just lived in bold freedom. Just freedom that loosed you to not worry about what happens. Because we know the great prize that awaits us is the presence of the Son of God. Can you not wait to see Him? I can't wait to see Jesus. can't wait to see Him. And it's only those who believe and who belong will see Him. I hope you got this last part. Because it will allow you on Thursday when the enemy comes to still kill and destroy And to tell you, you don't belong. You don't belong. To say, yeah, I do. I am in His hand. And it all came to us because of Calvary. The incredible gift of His life. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray.